Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. You have your Bibles this morning. Let's go over to John chapter 4. How many of you have been to the wilds in North Carolina? A lot of you. How many of you hiked Fourth Falls? So I did that when I was a youth pastor 25 years ago, and uh, I was down there speaking at a youth pastor's conference this spring, and uh, I couldn't really remember how to get to the falls, and so uh, there was two Maranatha interns there, and I said, hey, can you tell me how to get to Fourth Falls? And they said, oh yeah, you just go across this bridge, and you know, just there's signage, and just follow it all the way down. I said, well, how long will that take? And they told me 20 minutes. And so I said, oh great, I got 20 minutes. So I started that hike, and, and it was gorgeous. I mean, I mean, it, if you've hiked down to Fourth Falls, it's, it's down all the way from the camp. I mean, it's just beautiful, and I'm taking pictures. And, I'm, and I, I, I told him on the last night, I said, this really it feels like what ministry's like. You know, you get to your first ministry, and everything's wonderful, and you just love it. And, and I was just like, I can't believe I'm being paid to be here. Like, this is so amazing. And I mean, I'm just having a wonderful time all the way down. And if you've been to Fourth Falls, once you get to the falls, it's gorgeous. But there were signs all the way down saying, do not come back the same way. Follow the signs back. So I get to the falls, it's wonderful. And then I come and I see a sign that goes straight up a mountain. And I thought, well, that, that's what the sign says, so I'm going to do that. So I start going like straight up a mountain. And I'm about 20 minutes up that mountain. Remember, the whole hike is only supposed to take me 20 minutes. And I honestly, I thought, I'm on the wrong trail. Like, I don't know how, I thought, I, I saw the trail until I saw two ropes coming down from the mountain. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. This is the trail. And then, and then there's like sheer drop-offs and like you're three quarters of a way up and they put one cattle gate there. Like now they care about my safety. <laughs> and I thought, and I, I said, you know, this is, this is exactly like ministry. It starts out great. You know, the people that are, are uh, that you start with, you think they love you and they want to help you. And I said, that's when I realized those two guys, they were not trying to help me. This was an assassination attempt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then your prayer changes. You know, you're praying, God, thank you. And on the way back, you're like, God, let me live. <laughs> I'm praying for a helicopter, you know. <laughs> Can, will someone ever find me back here? And that's how I feel about going with Wilson on a 14,000 mile foot mountain, but uh, hopefully Bud Stemming can do my funeral up there, so, uh, but anyway, I want to read a lengthy passage of scripture. Several years ago, I preached on this same passage, and I, I preached on the mission of missions. Uh, I want to use the same passage, but I want to look on a lesson on evangelism, and if you hear in, in John, let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. But he must needs go through Samaria. And coming to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For the disciples are gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If thou knewest 
the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would give thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up in everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may thirst not, neither come thither to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that thou saidest truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and yet ye say in Jerusalem is the place men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said his disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth uh, fruit unto life eternal. That doth, that both he, uh, excuse me, I forgot my reading glasses this morning. Uh, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is one saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap there whereupon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of the saying for which we have heard, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. Evangelism 101. Let's open a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I pray that you would challenge our hearts. God, I thank you for the great messages we've already heard. God, I pray as we leave this conference, we would just be so burdened to do more, to be more intentional, to be looking for opportunities to share who you are and what you've done with a lost and dying world. God, I thank you for how you've used the messages we've already heard to speak to my heart. God, I pray you'd use this in our hearts and lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I went to Canada as a missionary. I started with 10 people. Uh, I was 28. Everyone there was older than me. So the next youngest person was 50. 
of the ten people I inherited. And uh, they had the attitude, we're going to give everything to missions, nothing to the pastor. Uh, I had one of those ten that no matter what I wanted to do, he voted against it every time, was very vocal. And uh, as you heard uh, Dennis yesterday talking about changing the culture in your church, uh, one of the best things you can do is outgrow those people, right? And uh, you outgrow them with new believers. They, th- they think if you're the one who led them to Christ, they're on your side. And uh, so... Uh, and I'm only saying that because sometimes you hear people come and preach. I, I love to hunt. And there are some people that say, I, I'm an elk hunter. And I say, really, how many elk have you shot? Zero. <laughs> well, you really just walked in the woods, all right? That's not, that's not elk hunting, right? I want to talk to the guy who shot 16 elk. Like, that's the guy who's an elk hunter. And I think as you heard from Dennis and Tim and Dr. Berg, I mean, you're just hearing people. I mean, he's in Freedom That Lasts. He's actually in there teaching it, doing it. They're doing it in their churches. You're hearing from people who say, this isn't a theory. Like, I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've applied it, and it works. And uh, uniquely in Canada, it was all missionaries when I went up there. In Alberta, it's the size of the Midwest, four states. And there wasn't any self-supporting churches at that time when I went up there. I mean, if that was in the states, we would be having a crisis, right? I mean, people would be saying, I mean, that'd be like if, if there wasn't in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, if there wasn't one self-supporting church like any of our churches here, we would go, there's a problem. Well, that was Alberta. And a lot of guys came and left, and I saw a lot about, everyone there's a church planter, everyone was a missionary. So I got to see a lot about what people thought about church planting and missions. And I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. And so, but God blessed. And, and we, we literally saw hundreds of people come to Christ. And, you know, people, when they see Meadowlands, how it ended, you know, we ended up being between five and six hundred. We had, we planted four churches, had a Christian school, had a small institute. Forget that we started with ten. When you start with ten people, I used to tell the people, if you have two cars, drive separately, right? <laughs> no one's going to come in the park. No one's going to walk into church with two cars in the parking lot, right? And so maybe you're in a small church, and, and I think this is what I like about Dennis. Dennis was in a small town. Edmonton is a large city. Edmonton is 1.3 million people. But the principles work the same in both places. And, and I think we see a lot of these principles in this text. And so uh, I think if we did a survey and said, how many of you would like to see people saved? I'd be shocked if anyone didn't put their hand up. But I would say, uniquely, as I've traveled, I think the churches that are thriving, as we heard last night, healthy churches grow, they're rare. They stand out. I would just tell you, as I've traveled America, it's not the norm. And I didn't know that. I was in one church for 18 years. I thought every church was like Meadowlands, right? And then I start getting out there, and I start traveling, and I start finding out, wow, that was, that was more special than I realized. But I'm not convinced it can't be reproduced. And I think a lot of it is coming back to, as you've heard already all day yesterday, getting back to what the Bible says about evangelism. And this is such a great text. And the reason I like this text is I think there's very few places in the Bible where you see Jesus making the first move. I mean, if you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of that is people coming to him. And I think if someone walked into your office and said, can you please lead me to Christ? I think everyone here would be, I'm up for that. We're ready to do that, right? But this is one, almost one of the rare places in Scripture where Christ makes the first move. I think you'd have this and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
It's one of the two places in Scripture where you actually see someone leading someone to the Lord and kind of see how did they do that. And that's why I think this is a special passage. Because this is what I think you and I are going to have to do today. I mean, in 18 years, we saw hundreds of people come to Christ. I don't think anyone just walked in my office for no reason and said, I've never met you, I have no connection to this church, but could you show me how to go to heaven when I die? And so we're going to have to say, hey, we're going to have to learn from what Jesus did here and how he reached out to a lost person. And I I think that most of our churches in our circles would not be hyper-Calvinist in doctrine. I think most of you here this morning would say, no, we are not hyper-Calvinists. But I think often we become that way in practice. In doctrine, we would not say that somehow the elect are going to get saved, but that's how we operate. Like, a hyper-Calvinist says we don't need to get, the elect are just going to get saved. That would be a hyper-Calvinist position. And in our churches, somehow we take that same position. Not in doctrine, but in practice. Somehow, we don't know how, but somehow they're going to get saved. Take your Bible and go over to Romans. We'll be back here in John, but go over to Romans chapter 10. Probably many of us, have, as we've led people to Christ, have used verses 9 to 12. And then verse 13, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But look in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And I would encourage you this morning, we all know that not everyone hears the gospel will get saved and go to heaven. If you've done any witnessing at all, you know that not everyone gets saved. But I think we would have to be honest, according to this text, we know that 100% of the people who never hear the gospel will die and go to hell. That's what the text, that's what the Bible says. How shall they hear without a preacher? If no one shares the gospel with the people in our towns, they are for sure damned to hell. And if we understand how terrible hell is, that should motivate us. And often, once a year, to our students, I read a description of hell. I take all all the verses in Scripture, and, and you say, why do you do that? Because I want them to be motivated. I don't want anyone to go to hell. And sometimes we don't realize how, how we, we know it up here, but we don't think about how terrible hell would be. And so as we begin coming back, if you would, to John 4, Many places, including the previous chapter in, in John 3, people were seeking Jesus, right? Well, who's the famous person in John 3? Right? little guy named Nicodemus, right? He sneaks into Jesus by night. He's seeking Jesus out. And what does he say? I, basically, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And we would all be good with Nicodemus, right? If Nicodemus comes and shows up at our church, we're there. But practically, how often is that going to happen? And really, even in the Great Commission, what's the first word? Remember this, right? (laughs) Go, right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We come to this text, and he tells us in verse 4, he must needs go through Samaria. I think we would agree, why did he need to do that? As you read the whole chapter, the reason he needed to do that is there's a lot of lost people here that are going to get saved. 
I mean, outside of that, I don't know what other reason we would come up with from the text and why he needed to go through Samaria. Like the only reason you could logically say he needed to go through Samaria is there's a lot of lost people here and they need to hear the gospel. And in his sovereignty, he probably knew they're going to get saved. So we're, we're going to need to make a, a, a detour. And we all know the, the, how the Jews felt about Samaritans. It even shows up in the text, right? The disciples, what are you doing talking to her? I mean, and even the woman at the well, why are you talking to me? I mean, there's no reason that Jews would do this unless they want to reach lost people. And Jesus says, we need to do this. We're going to go through Samaria. And I think he did it because he wanted to see people to come to Christ, but he wanted to teach the disciples a lesson. And I want to look at these lessons on evangelism in our text. And I think number one is be intentional. We see that in verse 4 and we see it in verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Success is choices, not chances. A lot of successful business people are not buying lottery tickets. Why? Because they understand success is not chance, it's choice. I'm going to have to make some choices. And, you know, when you have a, a thriving church and people are getting saved, I heard all kinds of crazy things about why they thought Meadowlands was growing. I, I honestly had pastors say, well, you know, why, you know why people are getting saved at Meadowlands? Because Pastor Jim lets the ladies wear pants there. By the way, if that was what it took to see people to get saved, wouldn't you do that? <laughs> and by the way, that would be awesome if that's what it took to see people get saved. I've heard people say, well, it's because of the way they do music. Now, we were very conservative. Piano, organ, orchestra. But there are churches that are seeing people saved, and people say, well, that, you know why they're seeing people saved? Because of their music. That's not true. One of the common denominators you'll find in all evangelistic, thriving churches, they're very relational, they're very friendly. No one wakes up on Sunday morning and says, man, when's the last time we've heard some good music? You know, honey, have you ever thought of going to church for some good tunes? Let's try that out. Never happens. No lost people wake up on Sunday morning and go, man, have you ever heard a sermon? I've never heard a sermon. Let's go try and, let's just go, let's go try one. You know the number one reason people go to church? They're looking for a friend. Do you know how many churches over eight years that I've walked into and out of and no one said hi? Not even the pastor? In churches of 50 or less? Like it's not like I blended in. I mean, I've sat with my wife with people having a deep conversation in the pew in front of me and a deep conversation in the pew behind me, and it's super clear we don't, we don't even know where the bathrooms are, and no one says anything. And I'm a believer. I feel awkward. And you know what those people do? Never coming back to this church again. Statistics will tell you people will know in the first five minutes whether they'll visit a second time. You know in the first five minutes they've not heard the music, they've not heard the preaching, but you know what they do know in five minutes? If you're friendly. And we've got to be intentional when we're at the well, when we're at the coffee shop, when we're walking in the neighborhood, when we're sitting on an airplane, when we're working out. Too many of us in those scenarios are acting like we're in an elevator. If you don't travel a lot, the unwritten rule is you don't talk in an elevator. I've been in an elevator where people are touching me on every side and no one says anything. And I'm just weird and wired. I just start talking then. (laughs) 
I mean, you got people in all your personal space, and it's like we just don't talk. That You just don't do that. And that's how we are as we're going through life. And would it have been tempting if you were at the well to not say anything here? I would challenge you, if you're the average Christian at this scenario, you just sit at the well, hey, it's a Samaritan woman, I'll just let her get her water and leave. That's not what Jesus did, is it? He intentionally engages her. And he asks her a question. And he asks, he asks her a favor. I mean, that's especially what you don't do with a first-time guest, right? You never go and say, hey, could you do, could you do something for me? <laughs> I've never met you before, but hey, could you help me out? But it worked, right? By the way, guess what you're going to find? It'll work today. Did you ever go and, in fact, I think I heard Tim Capon say this once, you know, go borrow your neighbor's ladder. Go, go to your neighbor and just, and when he said that, I thought, boy, that's exactly what Jesus, why? Whether you need the ladder or not, but you know what most neighbors are going to say? Sure. What are you doing? It's a great way to start a conversation. It's intentional. It's a simple lesson, and and honestly, a lot of these are going to seem simple, but I'm going to just tell you, most people, it's not a lack of want to, it's a lack of how to. I don't meet many pastors that don't want to see people saved. I don't see many churches that don't want to be seeing people come to Christ. But I see a lot of churches where it's not happening. And let me just add to this, what in the same town, if in the same town one church is seeing people saved and one isn't, can you say it's the people? Once you have to say it must be the church, at least possibly. Because <laughs> people in this town are getting saved. By the way, you're gonna, you know the text, right? The disciples go into town and come back. How many, how many people do they bring to Christ? The woman goes into the exact same town, exact same people. How many did she bring to Christ? It wasn't that people in this town weren't willing to get saved. But that's what I hear often, especially on the mission field, of why people aren't getting saved. Field is too hard. I think too often we're not intentional. He came to seek and to save those who are lost, the Bible says. What are you doing deliberately to engage lost people? I mean, we live out in the country. We go for walks. You just walk slow in the summertime, your neighbors will be out as well, right? My wife engaged we. Five houses up, we have a lesbian couple, and my wife engaged with them, and they said they were believers. We've never heard that. You never hear that in Canada. You never have someone in that lifestyle say they're believers. And and my wife said, oh, you know, well, we'd love to talk to you sometime. So about a couple weeks later, I'm walking slow through the neighborhood, and she stops me. And she comes up, and she says, you're the big guy at faith, aren't you? I said, are you talking about my weight? And she's like, you know what I mean. I said, you mean am I the president? I said, yeah, I'm the president. And this is what she said. You think I'm going to hell, don't you? This is my first conversation with this lady. I said, you mean because of your lifestyle? And she said, yeah. And I said, no. I said, actually, the Bible, that's, no, that's not why anyone would go to hell. The Bible says we go to hell because of unbelief. I said, but my wife told me that you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? I said, I'd love to hear your testimony. She says, well, you don't have time for that right now. <laughs> But she stops and talks to us from now on. Every time she's out, she's coming into our yard talking. Why? It's intentional. We had a lady that worked at a college in Kruger who worked at a coffee shop. 
older couple came up to get their coffee and she said, hey, I'd love to invite you to our church. He said, well, what kind of a church is it? She said, it's Meadowlands Baptist Church. And no one knew, but he'd grown up in a Baptist home, bolted when he was 18. Now he's in his 70s. His wife's at a United Church, begged him to go to church with her. And he said, honey, if I ever go to church, I'm only going to a Baptist church. So he says, well, what's the name of your church? Meadowlands Baptist Church. The wife looked at him and said, you promised. (laughs) And they came. And a week later, both of them trusted Christ as their Savior. What if that girl had just given them coffee? Are you tracking with me this morning? Too many of us are not intentional. And you're going to have to plan it. In fact, if you look at the qualifications of a pastor as given to hospitality, if you study that in the Greek, it's specifically to strangers. When's the last time that you had a lost person in, in your home for a meal? We all have one. We all have a house. And I, I love what Dennis said yesterday. We need to model it. And you have lost people in your home, they're going to say words you don't say, Right? And they're going to leave and you have to say to your kids, kids, don't you ever say some of those words. You're going to have people come over and say, hey, can I smoke? I always said yes, just not in the house. So do I leave them going out on my back deck by themselves? No, I go out there with them, right? I'll have to wash my clothes later, right? I smell like I smoked, right? But I don't make a big deal about it. I go to their home. You heard, you know, when they come and visit, what do they always bring? Bottle of wine. We never knew what to do with that. We had like four bottles under our bed. I said, honey, if we die, (laughs) I'm not sure anyone's going to believe that we didn't buy this stuff. (laughs) We didn't know how to get rid of it. We just put it under our bed. I didn't know what to do with that. I can't tell you if you go to lost people's house, how many times you sit on the back deck where they say, hey, you want a beer? You don't have to go crazy about that. Just say, no, thank you. You know, unsafe people, there's unsafe people that don't drink. You have to go, oh, back. I am a man of God. How could you? You do that, you go high on the weirdo meter for lost people, right? They'll never have you back. You just simply say, no, thank you. You know what lost people like? Okay. And then it's so fun when they get saved later, right? Oh, pastor, I am so embarrassed. I can't believe I offered you a beer. (laughs) But do you know how many pastors and churches I've met where they haven't had a lost person in their home in years? Ever? I've had pastors call me and, and, you know, and and by the way, when you do this, you need to be normal. You don't need a preachy prayer, right? You know, when we have people over for dinner, we just act normal. We always pray for our food. So I just say, hey, we always pray for our food. Is that all right if we pray? I've never had someone say no. I know, and thankfully I wasn't in Seattle, right? So <laughs> I never had anyone know. And, 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 and then you pray, and, and they just bow their head, and you finish praying. I've had people say, hey, that was a good one. <laughs> I didn't know they were ranked, but thank you. <laughs> But you don't, and then you just talk life, right? Why? Because you want to get to the place. Door to door. I think it still works. But I didn't go door to door and knock on the door and say, hey, could I ask you, first, first time, never met me, hey, could I ask you a personal question? 
If you were to die right now, where would you? That'd be like me walking up, never meeting you and say, hey, how's your kidney? I don't even know you. I'm not talking about my kidney to you. But you know, if you go door to door and say, hey, I'm a pastor in the area. I'd love to invite you to our church. Here's some information, at least in Canada. Now, Canada, Canadians are friendly. That's true. But they'll all take it. And do you know how many times, six months, a year later, someone would show up on a visitor and go, hey, do you remember when you brought this to my house? And in our culture today, they check you out before they come. That's one reason you need a good website. And they, they've probably already heard you preach before they came to your, your church service. But why would you go door to door? Intentional. By the way, I love people and I, I love evangelism. But even for me, the first door was always hard. But after the first door, I'm having a great time. And honestly, in all my years in Canada, by the way, when you only have 10 people, how else are you going to meet people, right? And But whether you go door to door or however you do it, and by the way, the best is relational evangelism. Just just being around your people and inviting them to church, and you start getting a whole church of first-generation Christians. We almost had no transfer growth. I mean, just imagine 10 people to five to 600 and probably 400 of them trusted Christ in your church. All your deacons got saved in your church. I mean, and new believers, you know what they have over old believers? They're evangelistic. They don't worry if they have the gift of evangelism or not. They do it intuitively. They want all their family to get saved. They want all their friends to get saved. They want all their coworkers to get saved. And they're super intentional. And they don't worry what they're going to think. Why? They want them to go to heaven with them. I mean, I, and create, you know, we, we talk like we're a church family. I had one guy get saved. He went to his literal family and said, you're not my family anymore. I'm like, oh, that's a bad approach. <laughs> they're still your family. <laughs> but we have a church family. <laughs> we got to explain this few things here. Remember one night we had... A Christmas cantata, we, we intentionally did it so that everyone could be a part of it. Minus 48 degrees Fahrenheit. At minus 40 Celsius and Fahrenheit are the same. It's just crazy cold when it's that cold. And we did that so that you didn't have to be in the choir the whole time. You could join just for the cantata because I wanted as many people up there to go to their coworkers and say, I'm in the cantata, you need to come. And we trained our people that way. And so minus 48, I said to my wife, if I wasn't the pastor, I wouldn't go tonight. This is nuts. Like, no one's going to come tonight. Who's going to be there at minus 48? I walk in. We had a 100 first-time visitors. I started walking around. I'm like, why are you here tonight? Well, do you know Joe? Yeah, I know Joe. Well, I work with Joe, and I told him I'd come to his cantata. I do not want to see Joe on Monday if I didn't show up to this thing. Really? Why are you here? Well, do you know Sally? Yeah, I know... I work with Sally. I, man, I was so dumb to tell her I'd come to this thing, but I do not want to see her on Monday if I didn't come. What does that tell you about our church people? They're very intentional. And it also tells you they're likable. Right? You don't show up at minus 40 if you don't like the person. You show up at minus 48 because you like the person and you care what they think on Monday. And you gotta be intentional. And I also agree on the invitation. Uh, you know, in Canada, when you have all new Christians, they ask why about everything. Why do I have to come forward? <laughs> that
That is a good question. (laughs) You could talk to God right in your chair. Why do you keep talking during the invitation when I'm trying to talk to God? That is a good question. (laughs) And so we didn't have a come forward invitation. We just said, if God's speaking to your heart, just sit and kneel at your chair. And if you're not here and you're not sure you're saved, raise your hand. And I trained our people, because you know what it's like when you're done preaching. Everyone wants to talk to you. And if they ever heard me say, I see that hand, our church knew, leave pastor alone. And then I would just go and walk around by that person, and they would always say, hey, I I put my hand up. Yeah, I saw that. Hey, when would you like to meet? Because lost people are used to making appointments. Most lost people didn't plan to spend an extra hour at church to go through the plan of salvation. And I've had the crazy people, you know, I had a crazy lady, we all have one, right? You know, that uncomely part that God puts in your church. (laughs) You know, they make, give aspirin a headache. And... You know, and, and I'm, I was literally talking to someone and she butts in and goes, you know, today is the day of salvation. I'm like, oh my word. That's true. But I guess I am Calvinistic enough to say God will keep him alive till we meet if he's going to save him. And I never had someone make an appointment that died before I met with them. And I, I'm being honest. I, elk hunting, right? Experience. Hundreds of people. They all live till we met. And the lost people are used to that. But we were very intentional. And I, I would just say, and again, you need to think this through, and especially after COVID, it seems we really lost the invitation. The invitation does, by the way, I preach through text. Wherever I left off last Sunday, that's where, I, you know, not, the gospel isn't going to be clearly in every text, but you don't know why people came to church. I could tell you five Sundays in a row where I said, does anyone want to be saved? Hands went up. I didn't even preach on salvation, and, but they, God is already working in their heart. And it also reminds your people, hey, we need to care about lost people. Number one, be intentional. Number two, have a God-aligned passion for lost people. Look in verse four. He must needs go through Samaria. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You have to really care. Often in the Gospels, you read Jesus was moved with compassion. Do you care about lost people? Could you prove it in the last two months? What have you personally done that proves you care about lost people? I personally think you should be praying for someone to get saved every night. You should be working on someone all the time. I mean, the Bible says... You know, if we went to Matthew 9, the fields are wide and the harvest labors are few. What's the next verse say? Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest. They send forth labors into the field. Who are you personally praying for to get saved? What's your Wednesday night prayer meeting look like? You know, in so many churches, it's a whole list of health issues. And not that that's bad, but it's like we're not praying for anyone by name to get saved. I look back at our, I, had a, I started as a missionary, so I had to write a report every month. And I'm glad I did, because now I look back and read those. And I can't tell how many said, hey, we're praying for, and I'd name their names. And then a few months later, hey, praise God, Joe got saved. By the way, you know what happens then? Your people expect people to get saved that they pray for. But in many of our churches, we're not even praying for lost people to get saved by name. And we have to model this. Who are we praying for every night? Do you care about lost people? Number three, spend time with lost people. We see this in verses six and seven. 
Jesus goes to the well. He spends time with the woman at the well. Look at verse 40. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. How often outside of work do you spend time with lost people? I mean, if you're here at this meeting, I hope your staff is saved. <laughs> so yeah, all my all the people I work with, they're all believers. So you're going to have to work a little harder to be around lost people than your church people, right? Most of your church people, they just show up to work. Now, probably the chaplains, that's different, right? I would assume the chaplains get lots of lost people to work with. But if you're a pastor, you're going to have to get creative. And and I think one of the problems in, in pastoring is that we spend... I think it's wrong to spend 40 hours a week preparing sermons. I would also say it's probably wrong to spend 40 hours a week with people. You need to find a balance. But because we love to study, and evangelism is a little bit awkward, we end up spending all of our time in the study. And and I've heard people say this, well, I'll do my evangelism in the pulpit, especially in church planters. Well, how are you going to get people to come hear that great sermon? I mean, if you're not out there talking to people, how is anyone going to come hear uh, that great sermon you spent all that time preparing? At the same time, if you're a strong people person, you can't hurt all the people who come to hear you preach on Sunday because you didn't spend any time preparing because you're with people all week. And however you're wired is probably how you're going to wrestle with that. But Jesus had to spend time with lost people. Is there someone that you're working on? Who are you praying for? Who are you spending time with? We're working on our neighbors. We're great friends. They they leave. They'll, they'll give me the code to their house and have me feed their and water their cat. And I'm allergic to cats. They don't know that. Our neighbors on both sides of our house. My the lady next door would consider my wife one of her best friends. The other couple on the other side would consider us one of their best friends. They're not saved yet, but we're we're working on it. But we're intentional. But you've, and I'll just be honest, you know, when I first came to faith, we were in huge trouble and there was a lot going on. And I, I left a church where I spent all kinds of time with lost people. And I was so overwhelmed with everything happening here that for two years I didn't spend any time with lost people. And then God broke my heart. I just thought, my neighbors are living next to the president of a Christian college and I have not spent any time with them. That's not okay. I'm training kids to go out and share the gospel, and I'm not doing it in my neighborhood. And God broke broke our hearts, and we just said we we have to change. And yeah, we're busy. I doubt there's very few people in this room that aren't busy. But if you agree this is important, then you got to find time to do this even in your busy life, even in your pastor. You know, say, you know what, this matters. This is, this is really important. I'm going to have to find time to spend time with lost people. By the way, I think Jesus was busy, but he needed to go through Samaria. And he intentionally went to the well. Why? Because that, was, that would be like the coffee shop of today. He knew lost people are going to show up here. And he intentionally didn't sit there silently. He intentionally engaged the woman. So you and I are going to have to find time to spend time with lost people. Next, you're going to have to take opportunity to share the gospel. 
once you build those relationships, you know, friendship evangelism is a great concept, but it's heavy on friendship and light on evangelism. If you are only a friend or a coach or a coworker, but you never give the gospel, you're like a salesman who never makes an ask. You need to be creative in steering the conversation of the gospel. Earn the right to be heard and then speak up. We all naturally talk about what we love. And I think you're going to find lost people are more willing to talk than you think they are. But if you're a golfer and you shoot a hole-in-one, would you never not talk about that? You talk about that all the time. If you're a hunter and you get a trophy animal, will you talk about that? Why are we silent about Christ? That seems weird. You know what? We come and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but we love him in a different way. I mean, I have two grandkids. I mean, you, you talk to people who have grandkids, and they're like, hey, you want to see a picture of my grandkid? Before you can say no, they got all the pictures out, right? They came home for a one-week visit. My wife said, honey, we got to go get a crib and a high chair and toys for the kids. I'm like, why? We didn't have the kid. <laughs> but we went out and bought a crib and a high chair and toys for the kids. You'd think we had the kid, right? Why? Everything we love, we invest in, except Jesus. We don't give money. By the way, this is a side issue, but pastors, if you're not generous, why will your people, you know, we want our people to give, but we don't give. And I, I think that's wrong. By the way, who sees that as God? And when you're not tithing, when you're not giving, when you're not generous, but you want your people to take care of you and be generous, that's broken. But you come back here, opportunities to share the gospel. We all talk about what we love. I'm a huge Minnesota Viking fan. All my in-laws are from Wisconsin, so you know that they need some spiritual help. But uh, I have no problem walking in a group of Packer fans and say, go Vikings, right? Why? I love the Vikings. But boy, to walk into a group of lost people and say, hey, I love Jesus, somehow it seems different for a lot of people. shouldn't be, but somehow it is. And I, I think we need to earn the right to be heard. We do need to build relationships. But the whole purpose you should be thinking the whole time you're building that relationship is when can I give the gospel? How can I share the gospel? My dad's best friend growing up. My parents got saved when I was five years old. We sent my dad away for his 50th. I didn't even know about this best friend. And he said on his fit, we said, Dad, what do you want to do? You and Mama are doing your 50th. So I have this best friend. I want to go see him. We, we literally, first time we'd heard about him. So we made that happen and found out that he lived in Phoenix. Well, I'm in Phoenix because I'm on a board down there once a year. My dad had been witnessing to him. I said, Dad, I'm going to see if, I'll, I'll go see if I can meet with them. So several years ago, came down and had a dinner with them, had a great time. They said, hey, next time you're in town, come to our house. Great. Next time I was in town, I went to their house. Got to talk to them a little bit about the gospel. They were still a little frosty. But this last week, I was in Grandview Camp. And I went to their house, and they had watched. He, they brought in her mother-in-law. She died in their home. And he brought that up, and I said, Hey, Tom, do you ever think about where you're going to go next when you die? It's just me and him in his office. This is a Boeing executive. They, he's the guy they sent to open plants. He worked on the shuttle. I mean, this is a, a brilliant guy, but my dad's age, 79 years old. I said, You know, Jim, I don't know. Now, I didn't go there the first time I met him, but I felt I can go here now. And I said, hey, Tom, could I go get my Bible 
and show you from the Bible what you have to do to go to heaven? And he said, sure. So I went out to my car, got my Bible, came in, and led him to Christ. And Saturday, he trusted Christ as a Savior. Do you think it would be easy to just be his friend? Hey, my dad's witnessing to him. I'll leave that up to my dad. No, the whole reason I started to see him in the first place was I was shooting for that moment on Saturday. Three years ago when I went to have dinner, the whole reason I went to have dinner is I hope someday I get to go to the gospel with him. Had a guy come in my office, didn't book an appointment. Secretary said, here's a guy, he says he needs to talk to you. He came in and sat down on the other side of my desk and he said, I I, I actually just have to talk to you because I need to confess something. I said, okay. And he held up a bridge track, which we had in a track rack, and he said, you know this track? He said, yeah. He said, I stole this. I don't know about your church, but we give them away for free at our church. <laughs> but he didn't know that. So in his mind, he stole it. And he said, I, I, I have a neighbor, and I, I just I wanted him to get saved. And he said, uh, I've been building a friendship, and he said, he ended up, coming over to my farm and he said, I hate to ask this, he said, but there's a storm coming. I've got all my hay down. I just, I need a tractor. Is there any way that I could borrow your tractor? And he said, I thought, man, this is my opportunity. He said, hey, I'll come help you. He said, I I brought my tractor over. I worked with him. We bailed all the hay. We got it all put up before the storm came. At the end of the night, he said, hey, how much can I pay you for that? He says, you can't pay me. He said, get out of here. He said, I have the money. He said, I, I, I couldn't have done this without your help. Just let me pay. And he said, no, you can't pay me. He said, but I'll tell you one thing you can do. He says, I'd really like you to just read this track. I said, come on. Like, you worked all day. You spent your gas, your tractor. All you want me to do is read this track? He said, yeah, that's all I want you to do. He said, come on, let me pay you. He says, no, I'm not going to let you pay me. If you want to pay me, I want you to read this track. He's like, okay, whatever. He took the track. The next week, he was applying for another job, as many farmers have to work a second job. And on his way back from that interview, he was killed in a car accident. This guy sitting across my desk said, all I could think about is, did he read that track? He said, honey, I got, I got to go talk to his widow. So he said, I went over to the next farm, and I knocked on the door, and she came to the door. And she said, he said, as soon as she saw me, she said, you wait right here. She went back in the house and she came back with a bridge track. And she said, do you remember this? And he said, yeah. He said, he came home that night and he said, honey, I can't believe this guy. And we've been neighbors for a long time. But he worked all day with me, used his gas, his tractor. He refuses to let me pay him. All he asked me to do is read this track. So, honey, when we're done with supper tonight. We're going to read this. And she said, we finished supper that night and we read through the track. And if you know the bridge track on the back, it tells you what to pray. And he said, she started crying in front of me. And she said, when we finished that night, we both prayed that prayer. And she said, does that mean he's in heaven? And he said, did you guys mean that? And she said, oh, yes. He said, absolutely. He's in heaven. And he said, she absolutely gave me a hug. And he said, I just had to come and apologize for stealing your bridge track. (laughs) Do you think that if he had just dropped the track off, the guy would have read it? 
Not like he read it after he helped them all day, right? And I would just encourage you, we can build all kinds of friendships and relationships. I could have been Tom's friend till Tom died, but the whole point of building those friendships is to give the gospel. By the way, I think that was Jesus' point with the woman. He loves her. He cares about her. But he wants her to come to Christ. He, he was intentionally saying, hey, I'm going to talk about water, but we're not just going to talk about water. I'm going to talk about water because I want to take water to the gospel. I want to take, I want to go from water to your soul. And by the way, what's the one thing she says? You know, the one thing we know about the Messiah when he comes is he knows all things. Do you think that's maybe why Jesus made the point, I know all things? Hey, the, the guy, are you married? No. Yeah, that's true. The guy you're living with, you're not married to, and you know, you've been married five times, and the guy you live in, what does she say when she goes into town? Come see a man who told me what? All things. And Jesus knows ahead of time. Hey, she already knows that when she meets the Messiah, he's going to know all things. So I'm going to tell her something that helps her understand I know all things. And I would just say, in seeing a lot of missionaries, they coach Little League's teams, they do all kinds of things, but they never get to the gospel. And the point of these relationships is to get to the gospel. That's what Jesus did in this text. We'll quickly wrap up. Uh, Next, don't be so busy doing ministry. You miss the point of ministry. Look at verses 30 to 33. He went out of the city and came to meet the disciples. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. They said to him, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said his disciples, one another, hath anyone brought him ought to eat? Jesus said to him, My meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white in the harvest. What's Jesus saying? Guys, wake up! Guys, you went into a town full of lost people and you came back with bread. Two things happen in this text. A lot of people get saved and the disciples have a teaching moment. They go into a town full of lost people and bring back bread versus the woman who brings back people. I would challenge you, the reason that people are not getting saved is not the field is too hard, it's that the labors are too few. It's that we're not lifting up our eyes and realizing the fields are white into harvest right now. And in healthy churches, they're seeing people saved today. Healthy churches are seeing people saved every year. And I'm in churches where the baptismal tank is used for storage. I'm in churches where it's been five years since an adult got saved in the church. And honestly, you know, the worst part about that is no one's bothered. When you're in a healthy church, if you go through a dry spell, everyone's concerned. Because everyone's like, man, it's, it's been two months. We haven't seen someone saved. What's wrong? And we would have special meetings. And we're just like, man, we got to get right with God. Something's wrong. Because, man, it's been a couple months since we've seen someone saved. I would also say, and I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty today, but because it is up to the Lord, right? I would always say, as long as you can say, this is what I'm doing, and no one's getting saved, then that's up to the Lord. What are you doing to reach lost people? If you're, if you're reaching out and it's not happening, then that's up to the Lord. But I would say most people aren't reaching out. Dennis will give you a lot of good suggestions if you go to his workshop today. We did all kinds of things. Wild game dinner. It started 60, 180, 240. And I just told our hunters, donate meat. We had great chefs. 
Man, do, do lost guys come to a wild game dinner? We did a golf tournament, not to golf, but we want to see people saved. Once a year I did anniversary Sunday, and I said, hey, on this Sunday it's going to be the best message on salvation I preach all year long. We're canceling every other service. We're only having one service this Sunday, and we're going to do a Baptist potluck. That's what we're famous for. And I said, I want your best. I mean, if you have a secret chocolate sauce recipe, you break it out. I mean, this is your best food, your best meal. I'm just telling you, over the last 11 years, we never had an anniversary Sunday where someone didn't get saved. And I told our people, if you have anyone that owes you a favor, you get them to come to this service. And then we're going to have a great meal, which gives me time to walk around and talk to... And we were doing that when we were, when we were over 500. Trying to do a potluck for 500. And why didn't we have Sunday school? Because I wanted you to come to church with your lost person, with your friend. I don't want them to have to feel like they, and I want you to meet them when they come in. And man, when that starts happening, does your whole church get excited for next year? By the way, you, you see people get saved at the wild game dinner. Do you have trouble asking people to donate for prizes? And you'll have businessmen open up their wallets like, man, I was here last year and guys got saved. How many guns do you want? <laughs> But the sad part is, it's not happening in the majority. And, and I would just say, and I would say though, the majority aren't trying like this. It'd be different if you could come and say they're all trying and it's just not working. But too often we're so busy doing ministry, we miss the point of ministry. And every time I'm in a large church building with a handful of people, you do realize that the person who planted that church had to be evangelistic. Or you wouldn't have a building like that. Somewhere in the past, someone was reaching lost people. Somewhere in the past, people in this town were getting saved because that's why we have a building today. But often, somewhere along the way, they lost the point. And it just came about going to church instead of being the church. And that's a big difference. And if your church thinks it's all about going to church instead of being the church, your church will die over time. I think our challenge, as we're hearing yesterday, is we got to get back to being the church. What's the point? Why is your church in that town? Because those people need to hear the gospel, and they need to get saved. And that's our job. No one else is going to do that. And last, as we close, be urgent in sharing the gospel. This is 34 to 36. Jesus says, look on the fields, they are white, all ready to harvest. He that soweth receiveth wages, and uh, gather fruit unto eternal life. But he that soweth and he that reapeth shall rejoice together. I think if you look at prophecy, North America has gone early in the tribulation period. If we had time, we'd go to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 to 21, where the Bible says in King James, we beseech, or in the New King James, we plead with people to come to Christ. We're to be ambassadors for Christ, beseeching them or pleading with them to come to Christ. And I think that's Jesus' point to the disciples. Guys, be urgent. Guys, you walked into a whole city full of lost people and you came back with bread. And you've seen miracles. I mean, you look back and John, they've seen the water turn to wine by now. How do you go into town and go, you won't believe us at the well right now. You know what I mean? He's here. The Messiah's here. Like the one. I don't care if you're a Samaritan. The Messiah's at the well. You got to go see him. By the way, that's all the woman did, right? 
She hasn't seen it. She knows nothing but her testimony. She hasn't been to one Bible class. She hasn't been to a Christian college. I mean, she knows nothing except I'm saved. Kind of like the blind man, right? This one thing I know. <laughs> I, I mean, this, that, that's such a great statement, right? I was blind, but now I see. <laughs> I don't know a whole lot, but I know one thing. <laughs> I'm telling you, I was blind, and now I see. And I want to encourage all of us. We need to be urgent in sharing the gospel. I don't know how you feel. It has an end times feel, right? I preached a series on Revelation many years ago, and I said, I think the Lord's coming back in four years. That did not happen. Uh, thankfully, I didn't give a date. So I can't give a date, but I would say it has a feel. I, I, I would just say it this way. If I'm raptured within the next 20 years, I wouldn't be shocked. There's nothing prophetically that has to happen for the rapture to happen. And so if you thought the rapture was going to happen on Friday... Are there some people you would not want to go through the rapture? Are there some people you go, oh man, I got to go talk to them. The Lord's coming back on Friday. And again, we have to live life, and you've heard great sermons all day yesterday on this. We have to live life, but we have to give some time to reach lost people. And it has to start with us. Jesus did in this text. What I love about this text is Jesus is reaching out. This isn't someone coming to him. She comes to the well, but she's not coming to talk to him, and she wouldn't have. In fact, she tells, why are you talking to me? She's shocked that he talks to her. Why did he talk to her? He wanted her to get saved. Why are you and I going to start talking to lost people? We want them to get saved. And I just think we all need to do something and encourage our church people to do something. I encourage our people, Magnificent Seven, two houses on the left, two houses on the right, three houses across, if God put you in your home on purpose, then you need to go after those seven families. Have them in your home, invite them to church, be their, be their best friend, and let God do what God's going to do. But be intentional. Let's close in prayer this morning. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.